Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 17. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through your psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, as we come back here in Colossians chapter 3, as we continue through our study in Colossians, we come back to this topic of sanctification, which Paul is talking about all through, all through the whole letter, but particularly here in chapter 3. I want to briefly come back to the meaning of sanctification. And I came across this statement in the Christian Missionary Alliance's Statement on Sanctification. They have a 12-page Statement on Sanctification. You can go online and find that if you want. It says, the meaning of sanctification, the basic idea underlying biblical sanctification is separation. And the separation is first and foremost to the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching us here in Colossians 3. What's our first and foremost responsibility? Is to set our minds and our hearts on things above where Christ is. That's where our first responsibility is. While the separation is from sin, that statement goes on to say, impurity and all that is unholy, primarily it is a separation to the person, life, and characteristics of God in Christ. Dr. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, stated that being sanctified means possessing the thoughts of Christ, the desires of Christ, the will of Christ, the faith of Christ, the purity of Christ, the love of Christ, the unselfishness of Christ, the single aim of Christ, the humility of Christ, the submission of Christ, the meekness of Christ, the zeal of Christ, and the works of Christ manifest in our mortal flesh so that we shall say, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Wow, that's a lot. When we receive Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit is given to us. There is no doubt about that, to live in us and to work in us. But there should come a point in our life where we consciously and deliberately yield our total life to the Holy Spirit. That's the filling, that's when the filling of the Holy Spirit takes place. You see, though we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we tend to like to still be in control, don't we? That's our natural tendencies. The Alliance refers to a crisis moment in our life when we realize that we've been trying to live our Christian life on our own with a little help from the Holy Spirit, 
But then we come to that point where we yield the entirety of our life to the Holy Spirit's control. Paul says in Romans 6, 13, offer yourselves to God. That's that crisis moment, the moment when you make that decision. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It is this yieldedness to the Holy Spirit that allows the life of Christ to truly operate in us for our daily holy living. A.W. Tozer expressed this idea with with this image. He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, wants to be Lord of your life, and he wants to possess you so that you are no longer in command of the little vessel in which you sail. You may be a passenger on board or one of the crew, but you definitely are not in charge. Someone else is in command of the vessel. Isn't that good? So the issue in sanctification is who controls the believer's life? Are we in control or is the Holy Spirit in control? That's why Paul in Romans 12.1 strongly says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship, he says. That's a point in your life when when we are fully worshiping God, when the Holy Spirit has total control of us. This this, uh, verse calls for a very decisive act on our part. That's what we read in Romans 6.13, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We must recognize the freedom that has been achieved for us by Christ and appropriate it, take advantage of it. Not take advantage of the freedom to sin, but take advantage of that freedom not to sin. We no longer have to. Again, reading from the statement on sanctification, believers then must rest in the wisdom, grace, and strength of God's Spirit. We cannot be, be the holy, devout people we ought to be in our own strength. We cannot in ourselves overcome the pull and power of sin. Sanctified living results from confessing our inability, reckoning ourselves as dead indeed unto sin, and by resting in the ability of the Holy Spirit to make Christ's resurrection life and power effectual in our character and conduct. Romans 8.4 indicates that in order to live according to the Spirit, we must submit ourselves to Him and depend completely upon Him. End quote. See, part of what makes it so difficult for us is our natural tendency to be our own bosses, to live our own lives the way we choose, to do what we want to do. Our pride makes us want to believe that we can do this Christian thing on our own, That we can live good enough lives in our own strength and in our own wisdom, but we can't. Christians must decisively yield their lives, make a radical commitment of their person, their whole being, to the Holy Spirit. Offer yourselves to God, Paul says. And the Holy Spirit then fills those who make this kind of a commitment to be filled with the Spirit is to allow the indwelling Spirit of God to assume control over all aspects and all areas of our lives. 
And as the Spirit then fills us, Christ then is able to dwell fully in us through faith. So Paul was saying in Ephesians 3, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, the fullness of it, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, last week we looked at a couple aspects of sanctification. The first one was the premise of sanctification. What was the premise? Verse 1, since you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, since you died. The only way that we can be raised with a new life is if we've died. Verse 3, since you are hidden with Christ in God. This is all part of the whole premise. And then the same premise is reiterated in verses 9 and 10. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul's saying this in four different ways. He wants to make sure that we understand what really took place at the cross for us. And every command here then that Paul lists is based on the fact that we are new creatures. Since that's all true, not if it's true, but since it's true, Paul then gives a number of imperatives that we are to take note of. This is the reality of sanctification. We have been forgiven. We've been justified by, before God. We have been born again into God's family. We have been regenerated. We've been brought back to life. And now we live in the progress of becoming more holy. And that's our second point that we looked at, the progress of sanctification. There's no way that we could be obedient to any of these commands that Paul gives us here in Colossians 3 if it weren't for the fact the Holy Spirit lives in us. The progress is in the putting off and the putting on. It is progressively the work of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that the best way to do this is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Kind of what Paul is saying, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. The more we continually set our minds and hearts on Christ, on the things above and on God's will, the more He is going to perfect our faith and make us more like Himself. And the more we allow Him to work in us, the easier it will be to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. So we talked about the premise of, and the progress of sanctification. Thirdly, we want to look at the partnership of sanctification. Look at verse 11. Here, where? It's the sanctified life. It's talking about the sanctified life. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now Paul addresses the issue of our partnership in sanctification. This is not just an individual exercise that we are to do just for ourselves. We are in this together as a body of believers, and we have to figure out how to love each other and how to treat each other. We are all new creatures. We have been born again. We have a new father, a new family, a new brother in Christ, and we have new brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. We are the church. 
We are all in the process, according to verse 10, of being renewed to a, new, a true knowledge in the image of the one who created us. We're being renewed into Christ-likeness. That's our objective, to be renewed into Christ-likeness. And once we have been reborn into the family of God, verse 11 doesn't say there should be no differences between different groups of people. Differences and distinctions are man-made. In Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In Christ, listen, distinctions don't exist. Distinctions don't exist. It's not even there. It's not in God. It's not a part of who God is. It's a very strong affirmative action here that Paul is using. If we look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we find Paul using the same phrase three times in the same verse, leading up to verse 28, and we'll get to that in just a second. In verse 26, it says, In Christ you are all children of God through faith. Verse 27 says, We've all been baptized into Christ and have clothed ourselves with Christ. And then you have verse 28. You could put it in therefore, but it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now we translate that in the English translation, the word neither, to make it sound grammatically correct. But the actual Greek literally says, Not there. There is not there. Jew or Gentile, not there, slave or free, not there, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In God's eyes, this, 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 the distinctions are not there. Therefore, it cannot be there in our eyes. We have a new identity, and our new identity is Christ, right? Previous identities don't exist. They're not there. They don't exist Pre-Christ distinctions are always made. Identity politics is being used as a battle axe to promote agendas, no matter what side you're on. Division. Where does division come from? It comes from Satan. Satan loves to divide and conquer. Satan is always trying to divide churches. God unites. God says, be united. God says, love each other. God says, forgive each other. Be patient with each other. Satan says, no, no, no. You're, you're far more important than that person across the aisle from you. Don't let them step on you. Be offended if they believe something different than you do. You can't be their friend. Go ahead and be angry and call it righteous indignation. If you remember, Paul said in Colossians 2.2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Why? So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. We need to be united. But Satan says, no, 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 divide, divide, divide. I don't want them to know Christ. God says there should be no distinctions among us, whether it's a political bent or your identity. Those should be, not be dividing factors in the church. 
2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 say, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That shouldn't even come into our perspective. Why? Verse 17, because if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The whole worldly view, that's the old. And the new is here. That's Christ. What a statement. We don't deal with people the way we used to. We don't deal with people in previous salvation, previous two salvation categories. Those categories should not exist in the church. Why is Paul stating this so strongly here? Because he saw the transformation in his own life once he turned to Christ. Paul was so transformed that he lost all of his original hatred for Christ and all of his very vicious prejudice against Christians. His view changed dramatically because of Christ. He now loves the one he did, and he loves the people who loved the one he used to hate. Now, when Paul was teaching this, this was rather a shocking truth to the ancient world among whom he was preaching. Because Jews and Gentiles were very, very separated. The circumcised, the uncircumcised. Ne'er the twain shall meet. The barbarians and the Scythians were very, very hostile toward each other. The slaves and the free were categorically in in different worlds. In the ancient world, it, it was that way. It's always been that way. And it's still that way outside of Christ. And there is so much social hatred still in our world today. Ethnic hatred, separation over religion, education, economics, politics, even fashion and music. Resentment, prejudice, and scorn leads to, uh, leads to conflict. Conflict then leads to violence. Violence leads to crime. Crime leads to destruction. Destruction leads to war. Those identity distinctions have led to the worst of all human behavior, as we've seen in genocide. But what's even worse is that the the groups themselves often think it's some kind of virtue to hate their enemies. It's a good thing. Even the Jews thought it was a virtue to hate their enemies. Then salvation comes along. And now a Jew and a Gentile are in Christ and they're one. What a miracle. A barbarian and a Scythian are one. And a slave and a freeman are one. There is, no, there is to be no more animosity, no more categories. There is to be no more racial groups, no more ethnic groups. It's all irrelevant to Christ. Now, Paul first points out the Jew and the Gentile in this verse. Now, we know they hated each other. We've studied that. And I guess to some degree you could say, you know, the, the, the Jews or the Israelites had a reason to hate because they were basically attacked and assaulted and killed so often in the Old, Old Testament history by Gentile nations. Even in modern times, they, they've been assaulted, which is illustrated by the horrible Holocaust that took place. And even now they have enemies surrounding them um, in, in the Middle East trying to destroy them. That's, that's, their, that's their aim. A Jew wouldn't go into a Gentile home, wouldn't, certainly wouldn't eat with a Gentile. Heaven forbid you'd touch a Gentile. If they went out of Israel, when they came back, they would shake all the Gentile dust off of their clothes so they didn't allow any of that Gentile dust to get on, in, in, into Israel. But in Christ, 
everything changes. But in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Listen to this amazing word from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the true group, speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, to reconcile both of them to God through what? Through the cross. Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The only way possible to bring true reconciliation and unity between groups is the cross. All the division we see in our country and in the world today, who do you think is behind it? Whether we want to believe it or not, we are in a spiritual battle. Satan is a great divider and destroyer of all that is good. Christ is a unifier. The one who brings peace and reconciliation. The, pre, the, the, the unity and the peace and reconciliation is not found in politics. It's not found in reparations. It's not found in the promotion of one group over another group. Christ, it's only Christ. Christ brought the Jews and Gentiles together into one family, and it was all by the cross. Paul mentions two other groups, the barbarians and the Scythians. What in the world or who in the world were they? Well, this is an interesting comparison that Paul makes here. The word barbarian is an onomatopoeic word. In other words, the name sounds like what is referring to. Words like pop, roar, crunch are all examples of this, uh, this kind of word. So because it seemed to the educated people, at least the people that considered themselves the educated, that the uneducated people sounded like they were just babbling. They didn't understand what they were saying. And so they began to mimic their language, and ended up calling them barbarians, right? It was pejorative. It was mockery. It was scorn. These people tended to be the nomadic roaming tribes who basically herded animals across the, the steeps of Europe. So by the cultured people, both Jews and Gentiles actually, they were the uncultured. They were the uncouth. People saw them as subhuman, uneducated people, you know, the low life, right? And they wouldn't, couldn't imagine that they would have any kind of social connection with a barbarian. But it's interesting that the comparison that Paul is making is not between the Greeks or the Jews and the barbarians. It's between the barbarians and the Scythians. So who in the world are the Scythians? This is actually the only time in all of Scripture that... This people group is named the Scythians. Apparently, they were, and you can look it up, you can Google it at another date, they were a powerful collection of tribes coming out of Iran, but spreading all the way from the Middle East to Eastern Europe, China, into Russia. And they were a conquering tribe from, for 700 years, from 900 B.C. to 200 B.C., they were master breeders and trainers of horses. Maybe that's where the Arabian horses came out of. 
And they used these horses as war horses. They terrified all the uh, tribes around them uh, who couldn't withstand them. They were vicious and they were deadly. Herodotus, a Greek historian from the 5th century, described the Scythians this way. They invaded, and all the land was wasted by reason of their violence and their arrogance. They drank blood of the first enemy they killed in battle. They made napkins of scalps and drinking bowls of skulls of the slain. Wow. Vicious, terrifying people. Herodotus said they they had the most filthy habits of anyone and never washed with water. Now, whether that was his impression or if that was actuality, but apparently they were a dirty group of people. So they weren't just barbarian. The Scythians were the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Even worse than the barbarians. But in Christ. But in Christ, Paul says, even between the worst and the worst of the worst, there's no barbarian and no Scythian. In Christ, the distinction doesn't exist. And one of the distinctions Paul makes here is the slave and the free, or the free man. The Roman Empire was a slave society. They estimate the population of Rome in the first century to be about a million people. But of that million, there were 300 to 350,000 slaves. Slaves, of course, could own no property. They were considered property. But interestingly enough, it wasn't racial because Roman slaves came from a whole lot of different nations. When the Romans conquered a nation, no matter what nation it was, they just took them and made them slaves. In fact, in their society, even Romans themselves could sell themselves into slavery. They called it debt slavery. They would sell themselves into slavery until they could pay off their debt. Parents who were poor and destitute could sell their children into slavery. So even though there there may not have been a real ethnic distinction of slavery, there was certainly a social distinction, a definite division there. You were owned, you were a living tool, you were an instrument. If you were a slave, you were nobody, you weren't even a person. But in Christ... But in Christ, those distinctions don't even exist. An amazing example of this that we heard about in the letter to Philemon is when Onesimus went back to Philemon. Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. Philemon was a slave owner. He was a master. And Onesimus came to be a believer and was discipled by by Paul in Paul's ministry. And then Paul sent him back to Philemon and told Philemon that he needed to receive him as a brother. Paul says, and I quote, He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. The distinction is gone. We should not be dealing with any of these distinctions because they don't exist in the spiritual realm. Why? Because all that matters is Christ. Paul says that Christ is all and is in all. The end of verse 11. The single identity of every believer, no matter where you come from, no matter what your status is, the single identity of every believer in Christ is Christ as part of the body. And that obliterates all identities. 
So we've looked at the premise of sanctification, we've looked at the progress of sanctification, the partnership of sanctification, and then Paul shares us with us the personality of sanctification. What do sanctified people look like? How do they act? What is their personality once they are sanctified? Well, we cover, he covers that in verses 12 to 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, okay, sanctified, right? Sanctified people, and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Okay, we're putting on here. We're putting on. Paul told us to put off the old desires. Now he says put on. Or to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why is that important? Because according to Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father is not going to forgive you. We have to forgive. Verse 14, And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Again, Christ is a great unifier. There are no distinctions in his eyes. So there should be no distinction in our eyes and in our hearts. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule. Be in control. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, we, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And then verse 17, love verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know, we could go through Scripture and find passages that point to each one of these virtues as a characteristic of Christ himself. Jesus was all that. He was kind, he was humble, he was gentle, he was patient, he was forbearing, he was forgiving, for goodness sake. Each one of those is a virtue of Christ, and Paul is saying, be like Christ. Be like Christ. It's interesting to me that James talks about two kinds of wisdom in chapter 3. James chapter 3 Starting in verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And then verse 14, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and listen, demonic. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This is Satan's go-to. Focus on self. Paul says that's idolatry. This is a spiritual warfare that we are in. And like Paul, he's saying, put it off. Put it to death. It should have no part in your new life, your new nature. That's not who we are anymore. But he says in verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven, remember we're, we're to set our, our eyes and our hearts on things in heaven, uh, things above, where Christ is, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all is pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So what does sanctification look like in a believer? All of that. All of that. Folks, we are called to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Rather than commanding us to to imitate him, the New Testament reveals a truth that's actually much more profound and dynamic. The New Testament teaches us that the life of Christ can be lived in and through us. Jesus himself indwells us by the Holy Spirit and lives out his life in and through us. Christ is the life-transforming power of sanctification. In the words of Dr. Simpson, he, speaking of Christ, he actually comes into our being and becomes a source and strength of our very life, reliving his own life in us. And he went on to say, this is the end to which the Spirit is always working, not to develop in us a character, a set of human virtues and high qualities that we call our own, but to form Christ in us and teach us to live in constant dependence upon him. Well, the doctrine of sanctification is by definition concerned with the life of Christ being formed in us, the same Spirit the Holy Spirit, who gives victory over sin, also empowers us then for service. That should be the outflow of the filling of the Spirit. We as believers should anticipate that the Spirit-filled life will produce both fruit and gifts because they are intended to flourish together. One of the statements from the Alliance Statement of Faith says this, It is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be sanctified wholly, being separated from sin and the world and fully dedicated to the will of God, thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. Let me close this morning with a familiar passage from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul is talking about Christ. And he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul, an accomplished apostle, accomplished church planter, accomplished preacher, accomplished witness, still saying, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. One of the great benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he is, a, he is alive in us to empower us. He is alive to grant power to those who belong to him. Are we seeking daily to know him and the power of his resurrection? Let's bow in prayer. Father, as we, as we approach greatest event for our salvation here in a couple weeks. As we approach Easter and celebrate yes, the death of Christ, but more so the resurrection of Christ. There's far more than just a historical event that took place. What we've been talking about, this whole topic of sanctification and the, the, the changing of our nature and, and the putting off of the old and putting on, the, all that is included 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be, to have that desire to know you deep, down, seriously. To know you and the power of the resurrection. Because it's that power of the resurrection in which we can then live victoriously. And we can accomplish all that you ask us to accomplish. Father, continue to transform our lives. Bring us more and more in line and making us more and more Christ-like every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.